Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Last year, poet and writer Clint Smith published a book, How the Word is Passed, about how slavery has been reconstructed in American public memory. Now in an Atlantic cover story, he talks about the project that followed his book, a series of visits to German memorials to the Holocaust. There's a decently widespread belief in the United States that Germany has faced up to its darkest time. But does that hold up under Smith's searching gaze? We talk about what we can learn from the German approach, its contradictions and complexities, and what really might be the most powerful memorial of all. That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Holocaust haunts the entire history of the 20th century for a reason. The ghastly murder of six million people, mostly Jews, but many other peoples as well, from across Europe, can never really be metabolized or or understood. But it does have to be reckoned with. How should the Holocaust be remembered? Who should be in charge of the places of remembrance? These questions are at the center of Clint Smith's new Atlantic cover story, Monument to the Unthinkable. It's a new branch of Smith's work, building on his travels to American historical sites to see how they presented slavery in this country. Smith joins us this morning. Welcome, Clint. Thanks for coming on. It's good to be here. Yeah. I think we should talk about your book first. You were on Forum then with Mina. People can listen to that uh, episode if they want the full story. But the book used American historical sites to consider the construction of American public memory. What did you take away from, from those visits? Yeah, so part of what you recognize um, is that for so many people, history is not about primary source documents or empirical evidence. Uh, it's a story that they're told, and it's a story that they tell. It's an heirloom that's passed down across generations. It's something where loyalty takes precedence over truth. Uh, you know, the book began in my hometown in New Orleans, watching several Confederate statues come down in 2017. 
And I was watching, as I was watching these statues come down, I was thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. And what are the implications of that? What does it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard to get to the grocery store. I had to go down Jefferson Davis Parkway that my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy and that my parents still live on a street today named after someone who owned hundreds of enslaved people. Because the thing is, we know that symbols and names and iconography aren't just symbols. They're reflective of the stories that people tell. And those stories shape the narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy. And public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives, which isn't to say that you just take down a statue and you suddenly erase the racial wealth gap. But it does help us recognize and take seriously the sort of ecosystem of ideas and histories that lead to the erection of such monuments in the first mm -hmm. place. And so I was mm -hmm. thinking a lot about that in the context of, of New Orleans and then sort of spread it out across the country. And, and you know, in working on how the word is passed, spent four or five years traveling to different, you know, monuments, memorials, historical sites, prisons, plantations across the country uh, to try to get a sense of how different places, different regions, different people tell the story of our past and, and what animates the way that those stories are told in such different ways. Where did Germany or how did Germany start to edge into your project? So, you know, the book came out last year and, and while I was on book tour, uh, people would often ask, well, you know, the U.S. seems to do this so poorly. We Who's doing to, it right? Yeah. Who's doing it right, right? And, and so does who, you know, we don't do it well with regard to slavery. We don't do it well with regard to indigenous genocide. We don't do it well with regard to the way that, you know, so many immigrants were prevented from coming to this country uh, who were not Western European white, uh, white folks until 1965. I mean, we don't, that's not part of our landscape. Uh, and so, yeah, as you said, people would ask who's doing it well, and I would often invoke Germany. I'd say, oh, Germany has memorials that are doing this and has monuments that are doing that, museums that are doing this. But the more I began talking about it, the more I was like, it's kind of, it kind of doesn't make sense that I keep invoking Germany if I haven't really spent time mm. visiting the memorials in Germany myself. And so uh, starting last year, I, I I traveled to Germany and spent time in Berlin, spent time at different concentration camps uh, across the country to try to get a sense of the a sort of on the ground, um, a sort of more grounded texture of, of mm. what the story looked like in Germany. Because it's, I think we, from the United States, we often render it a sort of uh, caricature of itself where we, we just sort of point to Germany as the, the world champion of, of memory. Mm. Uh, and the story is more complicated than that, more mm. complex than that, and, and more nuanced than that. And I, I wanted to uh, explore that as, as much as I could. You know, you write that W.B. Du Bois went to Europe in 1949, saw post-Nazi Warsaw, and that it, he credits it with changing. He says he, it helped him emerge from a certain social provincialism into a broader conception of what the fight against race segregation, religious discrimination, and the oppression by wealth had to become if civilization was going to triumph and broaden in the world. That's W. Du Bois talking. Did you see yourself as kind of following those footsteps, or did you find that trip that he took after you were already doing your, your project? No, I was, I was familiar with, um, with his trip. Uh, you know, I've, I've studied Du Bois for, for a long time, uh, and it's not something a lot of people are familiar with. You know, it was a relatively short essay that he wrote about his trip um, in the 1950s, and... And I think that he, he wrote it in the 1950s and went, as you said, in, in the late 1940s. Um, but for me, you know, it felt like in some ways sort of following that tradition 
of, mm-hmm. of a black American who is the descendant of enslaved people going to another place that has a violent history against uh, mm-hmm. both the Jewish people and, and, you know, the other people who were other groups of people who were persecuted uh, at the hands of the Nazis and trying to get a, a clear sense of how how other nations, how other uh, governments, how other spaces across the world account for and reckon with their past. And and I was so struck by the, by the point that he made where it's sort of, where he says that it expanded uh, his, his own sense of, uh, and, and sort of, he had a sort of provincial sense of what uh, race, of what oppression uh, looked like in the ways that that manifested itself. That was obviously informed by his own experience as being a black American in the United States, but it, his sense of the way that state sanctioned violence manifest itself became so much more expansive, so much more holistic, so much more nuanced um, in his time in Warsaw. And and I experienced in, in so many ways the exact same thing. It was so, um, it expanded my conception of the ways in which history happened and also the ways in which history is remembered or misremembered. Mm. You know, we have this moment right now where... Uh, a certain type of conspiratorial anti-Semitism has bubbled up through the culture. It's been expressed by Kanye West, a video shared by Kyrie Irving. Um, you're working on this piece, and that stuff is coming out as you're literally writing these words or editing these words uh, for the Atlantic. How were you seeing? The, how were you seeing that? Just what? What was your reaction to the, that moment? You know, I, I think that. Uh, it reflects uh, a profound sense of ahistoricism um, and and an inability to that. It, it, what it makes clear is that despite all that has been done to uh, both in the United States, in in Europe, and in, in other countries across the world, to try to ensure that the memory of the Holocaust um, and the memory of the, the most horrific, worst, widespread genocide in modern history is remembered and accounted for and and explored and, and understood by everyone. What it revealed is that even those efforts are not in and of themselves a panacea. Um, that they will it, that that building monuments and building memorials and building museums are are essential. Uh, in in helping to construct a collective memory across the world of of the horror that was done by the Nazi regime, and still, it is not something that's going to uh, to solve every problem. It's not going to to eradicate on its own anti-Semitism, um, and and I you know I I thought that those instances were really unfortunate, and and I couldn't help but but wonder. Um, what it would be like for some of the folks who are spewing these uh, anti-Semitic remarks to visit some of the places that I visited, to put their bodies in the place where this history happened, to to walk through the the crematorium and the gas chamber in Dachau. I, I you know, one of the most harrowing, solemn experiences of my life, um, and and I I can't imagine that people would. Uh, continue to espouse such uh, such hatred or such ignorance in the same way if they spent time 
in those spaces with people who were directly impacted by that history. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of kind of noted the, the core of this project, and it's, you know, a memorial is different than reading about these things or even seeing photos or, or, or footage from concentration camps, right? Because you, as you just noted, you put your body into that space. And I was really struck by one of the people that you talked to, uh, Frederick Brenner. You go with him to one of the memorials, which we're going to have you describe after the break. And he he says to you, I cannot process it. My mind cannot process it. And obviously, and then he wipes at his eyes, my body can process it. Is that a, a, a process that you've experienced before where you just, it, it, your mind can't do it, but by putting your body in that space, your body can? I, you know, when I was traveling around the country, um, thinking about and exploring different historical sites that had relationships to the history of slavery, I felt, uh, I felt a version of what, um, I think Frederick feels when he goes, you know, as, as a person whose family, um, was persecuted during the Holocaust, you know, Frederick, when he stands in these spaces, feels that history in, in the most intimate, profound, and often painful ways. And I, you know, again, the slavery and the Holocaust are qualitatively different phenomena. Like I always want to be clear on that, but it is helpful to compare uh, the experiences and to put the those sort of um, historical moments alongside one another. And so for me, my experience of standing in a slave cabin uh, on, you know, I think about the Whitney plantation where I stood in one of the original slave cabins. Um, it's a plantation in Louisiana. And I always remember this moment where I was standing in the slave cabin and and you can hear the wood moan under your feet. You see the sort of light slide in through the cracks in the roof. And I tried to imagine what it would be like if I put my kids to bed one night. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And I put my kids to bed and then I woke up the next day and my children were gone. And I had no idea where they went. I had no idea who had taken them. I had no idea if I would ever see them again. And then you have a moment when you sort of open your eyes in this space where enslaved people once lived and slept, where you realize that this is the sort of omnipresent threat that millions of enslaved people lived under every single day of their lives, that at any moment you could be taken away from the people you love. And I don't know that I would experience that with the same set of emotional stakes Mm. um, if I weren't putting my body in that physical space. We're talking with writer Clint Smith about his cover story in December's issue of The Atlantic called Monuments to the Unthinkable, about how Germany reckons with the Holocaust. Have you ever had a meaningful experience with a memorial, or maybe one that wasn't meaningful? Why? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with writer Clint Smith about his cover story in December's issue of The Atlantic. It's called Monuments to the Unthinkable, and it's about how Germany reckons with the Holocaust through its public uh, memorials. He's also the author of How the Word is Passed, which is about the public memory of slavery uh, by going to historical sites around the country. You know, Clint, um, I want to have you describe a lot, a lot of this story is really about the experience of you kind of going to these places and just looking. And I want to have you describe the memorial at Gleis 17. So the memorial at Gleis 17, um, it is one of the train stations uh, in Berlin where Jewish families and Jewish people were were brought to uh, and where they boarded trains that ultimately took them to concentration camps and and death camps in the east and what's so striking about the memorial is that on the train platform at the edge of each platform uh, you see the number of jewish people who were deported that day and you'll see the destination of where they ended up and so you'll sort of be walking along the train platform and you'll look down and 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 i so i went in the fall and so there's these sort of constellations of red and yellow and orange leaves falling around you and lining the platform and you look down and you see that on on this day in 1941 there were 130 Jewish people sent away and then you walk a little bit further down and you see on on this day you know two weeks later there were uh, 239 and then you walk a little further and you see on the next day there were 400 on the next day there were 620 on the next day there were a thousand on the next day there were 1500 and and this sort of ebbs and flows in this really haunting way and you and you look down and you see and and you sort of begin to imagine what it must have been like um you know for for me in all of these places i i i can't help but imagine what it would have been like for the actual people you know i think of jewish families who come and who are getting on this train and the people who had to pay you know, as insidious as it is, who had to pay the Germans to for the tickets uh, to get on this train, not oftentimes not knowing that it was taking them to places like Auschwitz. Mm. And, you know, what would you tell your children to to comfort them? What would you tell yourself, you know, in, in the midst of, of so much uncertainty? Uh, and and it's it, it just makes it so much more real because you're looking at it and then you're looking at the sort of remnants of the train tracks below. And there's a, a tree or a group of trees in the tracks um, that almost sort of serve as this metaphor for uh, this idea that like th- these tracks will never be used again. Like they can't be used again, given the history um, that that they have um, been a part of. And yeah. and for me, I, I there's something to be said for recognizing that something that was a part of such a horrific history should that that land can never be used for anything other than memory ever again, which mm-hmm. is so different than what we do here in the United States. You know, one of the places I went to the, uh, 
uh, and how the word is passed was Angola Prison. Angola Prison is the largest maximum security prison in the country. 18,000 acres wide, bigger than the island in Manhattan. It's waste, a place where 75% of the people held there are black men and 70% of them are serving life sentences. And it's built on top of a former plantation. And so what are the sort of failures of our collective memory here in the United States where we would allow the largest maximum security prison in America, in which the vast majority of people were black men serving life sentences who worked in fields, picking crops for pennies on the hour while someone watches over them on a horseback with a gun over their shoulder? Right. This this how how is that allowed to happen in a place that was once an intergenerational site of torture and exploitation? And and part of what allows that to happen, I think, is uh, a fundamental lack of a collective understanding on our end in the United States of of on, of, a, of a real honest, in-depth understanding of what slavery was and the social, economic political and personal impact that it had on people over the course of so many generations. Yeah. I, I think I understand what you're saying, but I want you to spell it out a little more. I mean, why can't or why shouldn't these lands be used for anything else but memory? Like, what do you think happens to these places that have these horrific histories just right there? One of the people that I spent time with at Angola is a guy named Norris Henderson. Uh, Norris is... Uh, uh, somebody who's really involved in the prison reform movement in Louisiana and, and across the country um, and, and very much a leader among formerly incarcerated people. And he was in Angola for almost 30 years. And when I was with him at Angola, one of the things that he told me as we were leaving, we were sort of on this bus and we were looking into the distance and we saw these men who were working in the fields and they were lifting their spades into the air and digging them into the earth. They were lifting their shovels into the air and digging them into the earth while someone was watching them on horseback with a gun across their lap. And he looked at me and he said, Clint, I can't begin to explain to you what it felt like to work in these fields, picking cotton for seven cents an hour, wondering if my own ancestors had picked cotton in the same field 200 years ago, right? So for the, for the people who are incarcerated at Angola, this history is not an abstraction. It's not a metaphor. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's something they feel in their bones, in their bodies. It's, it's the calluses in their hands. And I can't imagine, I mean, it's, that's so painful for me to hear, mm -hmm. right? That, that, that this man was in this space doing work that was so mm. uh, unsettlingly parallel to the work that his own ancestors had been forced to do generations before and that he was, while he was doing it, was forced to wonder if his own ancestors who had been enslaved in Louisiana had one day, had at some point worked on that same land. I mean, that is, for mm. me, that is a level of uh, abhorrence. Torture. And, and torture, I mean, it, it is... What does that do to someone's mind and someone's psyche? What does it do to all of our minds and all of our psyches collectively to allow that to happen? You know, something that we would never allow to happen in a different geopolitical context. And, and just to take the, you know, take it a little bit further, when I was standing in Dachau, you know, it's this vast, haunting expanse of gray land. And you look to your left and you see the remnants of the crematorium. You look to your right, you see the sort of skeletal remains of the barracks. And I I had been to Angola, obviously, before this. And so when I showed up at Dachau, I closed my eyes 
And I imagine, you know, what it would be like if on that land they built a prison. Mm-hmm. And in that prison, the vast majority of the people held there were Jewish. Mm-hmm. I mean, I couldn't even fully complete the thought exercise because it was mm-hmm. so viscerally upsetting. It was so absurd. It was so disgusting mm-hmm. to imagine the very possibility of something like that. It w- we've never allowed to exist. It would be a, a sort of global emblem of anti-Semitism. And, and rightfully so. It would, it would be unacceptable in every, every way. And yet, here in this country, the largest maximum security prison in the country has peop- uh, is filled with black men serving life sentences who work in fields doing work that is unsettlingly parallel to the work that had been done many generations ago during enslavement. And, you know, it's, it's, it's as the scholar Sadia Hartman would say, it's the afterlife of slavery, the way that the remnants of slavery continue to shape the social, political and economic infrastructure of our country today. And and what is it that allows that to happen here that would be understood as fundamentally unacceptable in a, in a different geopolitical context in the way that it is in, in Germany. Yeah. Let's, you know, I, I do want to talk about, because this is the story of German memorial building or, or, or public memory. That's sort of the positive side of it, that they, they have done things that we have not been able to do in the United States. But you also did find that this story is very, very complicated. And it's complicated in part because very few Jewish people were involved in building these memorials, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, part of what I didn't even fully understand until I got there was was just how few Jewish people are left in Germany. I mean, Jewish people represent less than a quarter of a percent of the population in Germany. There are more Jewish people in the city of Boston than there are in all of the German nation. And, and that is fundamentally different than the experience of, of black Americans here in the United States, you know, which in which there are over 40 million of us, uh, in which we represent like a very meaningful social, political, and cultural block that is still very present. And so, you know, one of the things that people would say is that uh, you know, when I spend time with uh, Jewish folks in in Germany, they would say, "Well, it's very easy for Germans to apologize for the Holocaust or to lay a wreath down or to build a memorial, because Jewish people are are almost historical abstractions more than actual people. They are, uh, as as one woman put it, sort of empty canvases upon which Germans can can paint their contrition, and th- that." has a very different set of implications here in the United States where like you can't simply put up a wreath uh, or, or lay down a wreath and put up a memorial and say you're sorry for what happened with slavery if you're not also going to engage in meaningful material interventions that repair the the harm that the descendants of those people are experiencing, right? And so like contrition without reparations doesn't mean as much. Um and and in in the German context, with so few Jewish people, um, that takes on like a fundamentally different sort of texture. And to your point, part of what's also happened is that Germans have not always included Jewish people in the process of building uh, the more the monuments, memorials, museums, um, and Jewish people have often been excluded from decision making processes 
around the commemoration of their own past and the past of their own family members. Uh, Why was that? For, I think sometimes it is because um, there's there's obviously not a, a single reason, but one of the things that uh, that came up was this idea that that Jewish historians or Jewish scholars, um, the Jewish people writ large, could not be uh, objective um, in their assessment of the history. That they were too. Uh, too, they would be too biased. They were too close to the history to be able to have an input that felt uh, objective and neutral. And I was talking to a woman, uh, Deborah Hartman, who uh, who is a Jewish woman who recently took charge of the House of the Vanti Conference Museum, which is the the sort of idyllic lakeside home outside of Berlin, where uh, leaders of the Nazi Party came together to sort of plan out the contours of of the final solution uh and she is the first jewish woman or the first jewish person i believe to to be in charge of that museum and she's made this comment to me she was like it's so disingenuous that people would suggest that jewish people were too close you know quote unquote to that history to be able to be a part of the the sort of creating the landscape of memory where many of the people who are on the boards or are on the uh, are in the political positions or in the scholarly spaces um, who are a part of those conversations have their own relationship to that history. And she said, she was like, there are scholars who write about this who were members of the Hitler Youth. And nobody talks about, you know, whether or not they're too intimate or too proximate or can't be, uh, or whether they can, you know, whether they have any biases uh, that have to be accounted for, and and that was striking for me because it was so, it sort of echoed so much of what has been said of of black scholars um, when thinking about issues of enslavement or studying Jim Crow apartheid. It's what's said of many indigenous scholars whose families and whose ancestors had been uh, who were killed by you know in in sort of uh, massacres and genocidal projects at the hands of the United States government. So it's something that people in the United States have experienced in their, in their sort of own context. And, and it was striking to, to find that uh, it existed that way in, in Germany as well. Yeah. Let's bring in uh, a couple of callers, Nancy in Berkeley. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I'm Japanese American. I live in Berkeley and I'm the granddaughter of Japanese immigrants and um, my parents, my grandparents and more than 12 of my relatives were taken from their homes and put in the Tanfran racetrack south of San Francisco and then moved to Utah, 800 miles away. And while they were there, a man um, who was a chef in San Francisco, and Clint, we met in San Francisco when you visited um, <laughs> the spot where this man was taken away. Um, anyway, he was, he was walking his dog near the barbed wire fence and was shot through the heart and killed by a military guard. And government records show that a monument, a memorial was built to him, um, but it was ordered destroyed. And everyone thought, well, that's gone. And it was a great injustice. And it was the most traumatic memory of my parents. They talked about it when I was a child. So um, a year and a half ago, thanks to a map that was found in the National Archives, I just found the top of this 1,000-pound memorial stone in the desert. 
And what happened was the Topaz Museum Board, and that's the name of a museum locally in Utah, which is supposed to steward the history of my family and the 8,000 people in that camp, they dug out the memorial with a forklift and a chain without telling Japanese Americans and without archaeologists. And it was so traumatic because not only was that act extremely painful, um, they also have been not allowing stakeholders, family members to participate in future discussions about how it should be treated in the future. Mm. And I just want to thank um, Clint for his work because um, the desecration of this memorial, I've been grieving about this more than actually the death of my own parents. And I don't understand why, except that I think that this, this example of a death that was whitewashed, covered up, and then desecrated 80 years later has opened a window for me on the pain and suffering of other communities that's gone on in our country. And I've never felt it in my body mm. like I have this one. Nancy, thank you so much for, for sharing that with you and wish you kind of peace and come to terms with that. You know, Clint, I'm, Nancy's story just reminded me I mean, that the, the sum of all these stories is really the idea of our nation. And how do we build this capacity so that we're not doing these things because the board of such and such says this is how it's going to happen? Like, how do we build the, the capacity to respect these histories? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I just want to thank Nancy for, for calling and sharing. I, I spent some time with um, Nancy and other uh, survivors of, of some of the uh, Japanese incarceration camps in uh, in California and, and some of the folks who are descendants of those who, uh, who lived through those camps. And so, um, I learned a lot from her and, and I'm very grateful for, uh, for her sharing this story, uh, with me and sharing the story with you all. I think that you have to move through the work of memory with a, a certain level of um, empathy, humility, and generosity, which is to say, it, it is complex. It is messy. It is, you will have groups of people who, who carry the same history in their lineage, who have fundamentally different conceptions of what should be done to remember that history and account for that history. As, as, as I examine in the piece, you know, not just because you are a Jewish person living in Germany doesn't mean that you all think you all have the same opinion about the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe or the mm -hmm. Stolperstein or the or Gleich 17 or any of it, right? In the same way that you know it's it's a heterogeneous group of people, in the same way that any group of yeah. people is, and they have different ideas, different sensibilities. And so, I think as much as possible, you have to, to listen, you have to yeah. learn, and, and just be, be as humble as you can. We're going to dig into that right after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with writer Clint Smith. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with writer Clint Smith about his cover story in December's issue of The Atlantic called Monuments to the Unthinkable about how Germany reckons with the Holocaust. He's also the author of How the Word is Passed on the Public Memory of Slavery in the United States. I wanted to ask you about the Stolperstein. Uh, maybe you can describe them um, and you maybe also get into some of the complexities of how they even began to be placed around the country. Yeah, so the the Stolperstein uh, and the English translation of that is stumbling stone. Is uh, they are uh, sort of small brass uh, blocks um, or brass covered blocks that are placed into uh, into the ground, you know, into the middle of a cobblestone sidewalk, and they have the name, the birth date, the date of deportation, and the death date of the person. Um, they're commemorating and the place where that person was, uh, was killed, um, if they were killed. And they are often placed in front of the final residences, um, of where Jewish people and other people who were persecuted at the hands of the Nazis were taken from. And so they might be placed in front of a home, an apartment building, uh, you know, a restaurant that used to be a home, uh, a synagogue, uh, a shoe store, you know, I found them all over in in Berlin. And now there are 90,000 of them across 30 different countries in Europe. And, and the first time I, I saw one, I almost I kind of almost missed it. I, I saw the, the gleam of the sun sort of reflecting off of it. And I went and I looked down and I saw the names and I saw the birth date, the deportation date, the death date, and they said, and the, the place where they these folks were killed. And I looked up at this building. And again, it just it just creates this profound sense of intimacy with that history because you can see how old they were. You can see uh, what the place they lived. You can imagine them walking out of this building, you know, going to the grocery store, bringing their kids to school, and and ultimately being being marched away by SS soldiers and and sent to the to train stations like Life Seventeen, um, where they would be deported out and out into these camps. And it's, it's so striking because you'll walk down the street and you'll see two of them in front of a home. You walk a little bit further down, you see four of them in front of a home. You walk a little further down, you see seven. You walk a little further down, you see 12. And, and again, you can look down and you can tell by the dates who were the kids, who were the parents, who were the grandparents, who might have been the, the neighbor from across the hallway, who might have been an uncle who lived there, who might have been a cousin, who might, you know, and and so it just allows you, again, by putting your body in the physical space, by putting these Stolperstein in the physical, as part of the physical landscape from and in front of the spaces from which people were often taken from, it reminds you both how recent this history was and how proximate you are 
to history. And it was started by a guy, uh, an artist named Gunter Demnig in 1996. And he began putting them down on his own. You know, his father had been a Nazi soldier. And and I, I had, you know, I, I didn't have the opportunity to speak with him, but it's, it's almost impossible to imagine that this wasn't uh, a sort right. of act of contrition on his own, right? You know, that his father had penance, uh, fought, uh, exactly, had fought in this war and, um, and was now, and that he was now laying down these stones um, that have now become the largest decentralized museum uh, or largest decentralized memorial in the entire world. Uh, and, and it's, at first, he did it without being sanctioned by the government. In fact, the government, you know, different local governments tried to stop him from putting them down. Uh, but there was so much public support for it that ultimately they got behind him. And it was a reminder that that these projects are not that you don't have to wait for the government to like give you permission or to tell you to do something or to tell you how you should remember different pieces of history that it's ordinary people like Gunter Demnick who who see a gap in our in our landscape in our collective memory and who uh, who decide to make interventions you know I had always found the Stolperstein the stumbling stones to be such a beautiful idea of a memorial and, and the execution of them as well just uh, that that it brought this public history into public space in a way that that other kinds of memorials cannot and so i was a little bit stunned to to find it from your piece that there is this strain of critique of them that's actually quite strong and it's from jewish people in germany yeah again you know Jewishness does not. Jewishness is not a homogenous um, group of. You know, to be Jewish is not to be part of a homogenous group of people. It, you know, people have all sort of different politics and sensibilities and ideas, um, and and that is reflected in the perspectives on the Stolperstein. Um, the you know, there are peop- the city of Munich um, doesn't allow Stolperstein to be put down because uh, a woman, in part, because the, there's a woman who. Uh, was a sort of leading Jewish figure uh, in that community who who led an effort um, to to prevent them from being put down because she saw it as disrespectful. Uh, she saw it as uh, unacceptable that you would be able to step on the name of a Jewish person that it that Jewish people's uh, like you know that their names and their memories would be covered in dirt and dust and uh, you know, and, and, and feces. Um, and, and so she is, you know, among a group of people, um, who, who would rather there be, um, plaques that are put up at eye level, um, Mm -hmm. who thinks that the, there are other ways to, uh, Mm -hmm. to memorialize these folks and and who don't agree that the Mm -hmm. Soperstein is an effective way. And, and part of what I wanted to capture in the piece was that complexity, right? Mm-hmm. What I didn't want was to go to Germany and be like, wow, look at the Stolperstein. It's they amazing. got it figured out. Yeah. yeah, they, they, you know, they know how to do this. They like, we, if we got to do this, we got to do this. And it's not to say that I wasn't impressed by so much of what I saw there. I was, I'm, you know, again, I'm coming from a space where I'm, I am starving for any sort of, uh, uh, part of iconography to to slavery or to indigenous genocide or to to the parts of America's history that America uh, fights so hard not to recognize, and so it's inevitably in some way when I go I'm going to be struck mm-hmm. by the the sort of ubiquitous nature of 
of these monuments and memorials and how omnipresent they are as part of Germany's landscape. But for German people and for Jewish people, um, there are people who believe that the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe is is really effective and people who believe that it's uh, too abstract and too passive. There are people who believe that the Stolperstein are incredibly intimate, uh, powerful, decentralized uh, spaces of memory and people who believe that they are disrespectful because they have the names of Jewish people on the ground and people step on them and, and walk on them. There are people, you know, and, and so this yeah. is the case everywhere. And I think if we're going to be honest about the complexity of memory and the complexity of history, we also have to be honest about the nuances and, and complexity of how uh, different people make sense of it. You know, threaded throughout your essay, you don't come right out and say precisely this, but is there a difference between what non-Jewish Germans might need to memorialize and remember about what they did, what their the Nazi regime did, and what Jewish Germans or Roma Germans or other people who were persecuted might need to remember about those same events? You know, I the thing about working on a piece like this, um, in on a piece that is, you know, you you have a limited uh, word count with which to explore something so massive. You know, there's scholars who've written you know, entire tomes on, on these subjects. Mm -hmm. Um, this, I, I hope that this is the beginning of my engagement, um, with the subject matter. And, and I think there's, there's an entire other piece to be written about the ways that, um, public memory exists or doesn't exist and the monuments that do or don't exist around the other groups of people, uh, who were persecuted at the hands of the Nazis. Um, and there are, spaces that that do exist the, you know it, it, the question is always how does one do so and account for the, who has monuments and who doesn't have monuments or who's being talked about in history or who's not being talked about in history without creating like inadvertently creating a, a sort of hierarchy of uh, of oppression in some ways um and how do you do justice to the totality of the violence that was engaged in um without you know, making it sound as if, without trying to uh, make it so that you know, again, you are creating a sort of like you're you're overly delineating. You know, like okay, do do do, do the Jewish folks have uh, monuments that are commensurate with the suffering and death they've experienced? Do the uh, do queer people have monuments in ways that are commensurate with the violence they experienced? Mm -hmm. Do uh, you know, and and you could do that for uh mm -hmm. for any for any group but and it's tricky and, and i hope to explore more of that um yeah. more of that moving forward let's uh take a couple more calls mike in oakland welcome hi there my name is mike uh i had a pretty powerful experience when i was in college that uh involved artwork actually oh yeah go so, ahead yeah all right so uh I was in the library, I was just between classes, and it was at Foothill College. Shout out to Foothill College. And I guess a bunch of artists were commissioned or, or did projects about, like, atrocities that happen around the world. And I was wandering around. There was this white pillar in the middle of the library, and everyone else was, you know, no one was looking at any art, I guess, or young and stupid. And I, I walk up to it, and it's about, like, maybe six one or something. And I couldn't tell what it was, a stack of paper. And then I get to it, and I stand on my tippy toes, and on the top of the paper, there's just like hash marks upon hash marks, just 
almost blacked out piece of paper. And, you know, there was no signage right there, but on the wall there was a piece of signage, and it basically explained that the artist made a hash mark for every person that uh, died in the Holocaust. It was a very mm. awful experience. And at the very bottom of the stack, like if you got down, you know, against the floor, like maybe a centimeter or two off the ground was a little, like, postmark that said, uh, Americans that died in the Vietnam conflict. It was, like, so stark to me that, mm. you know, you can't quantify. And that this artist took so much time and effort, just like a Herculean effort of care. I was just like a, more of a, I don't know, proletariat look at art. Like, I'm going to get through this. And yeah. it was, well, I, I was crying. Wow. Very beautiful. Mike, thank you for, for sharing that experience uh, of that quite powerful sounding piece hanging out in the library. I'm going to go, I want to get in one more experience of Barry in San Francisco, and then Clint will take them together. Hey, Barry. Hey, Alexis. Thank you very much for doing this program, and thank you to the author for writing this piece. I'm uh, born and raised in Ireland, and I live in San Francisco, and I wanted to say two things, but before I do, I just want to point out that there's this very stark and somber and almost forgotten about monument to GLBTQ people who were in the concentration camps, and it's at the junction of... Market and Castro and 17th Street mm-hmm. on, ironically, a triangular piece of land. And it's just these stark granite stakes that are in the ground and they stand there holding space for the memory of all those people murdered mm-hmm. in the camps that were GLBTQ. But I want to say two things. I've had an experience of making a quilt for the AIDS Memorial Quilt and of being in the space where thousands of those quilts were. And I think that that was a very powerful experience. And as a young man living in, I was born and raised in Ireland, in Dublin, and there was a huge monument to Nelson, Lord Nelson. And it was for decades, actually a long, long time, this, you know, finger in the face of Irish people that uh, a memorial to a colonialist and an imperialist stood there. And at one point, when I was a very young man, it was blown up by the IRA. And in my neighborhood and in many parts of Dublin, people were very happy and celebrated that. This explosive, dramatic erasure of a monument that was also a monument to an imperialist power that tried to erase and destroy Irish culture and language. And I want to just say that one of the things about these memorials is that like the author has intimated and stated so eloquently, there is something beautiful about all these memorials to allow us see our common humanity and how cruel other people can be to one another. The experience that he describes of Jews and GLBTQ people and other people in the camps, but also the horrible, grotesque experience that's perpetuated even now by the attempt to erase the experience of African-American men and women in this country. And I think the more conversation we have can help make that more pronounced and give voice to this and change the narrative. So thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, thank you, Barry. Clint, I just want to give you a chance to respond there. Yeah, thank you uh, to to both of the the callers for sharing. Again, I think it's just a reminder 
to me. And, and this is sort of the conclusion that I come to at the end of the piece, um, in which, you know, it's a piece in which I, I kind of left with more, more questions than answers. But, mm. uh, but one answer, uh, and conclusion that I did come to was again, just to emphasize, like it is ordinary people. It's everyday people. It, it can be anyone who can create the, the monument, the sort of memorials and the, uh, the infrastructure, whether it be, um, a monument, uh, a small monument in a library, whether it be a quilt, um, who can create the pieces of memory that remind us of what happened. Like it, it, it doesn't have to be a massive state sanctioned project. The most important and meaningful pieces of memory to me exist on, on hyper local levels, right? You know, one of the, the we, we've been talking about the Stolperstein, like the, one of the most powerful things about the Stolperstein is not even the actual stone itself, but the process that goes into placing the stone down, right? It's, it's often uh, people who, who live in those homes now who, who lead the effort to explore the history of, of the Jewish families uh, who, who lived in those homes before them. And, and you, it's the process of doing research. It's the process of, if you're, uh, you know, it's often done with, with schools, with uh, students and educators. It's, it's often done uh, through, through churches. It's often, you know, so, so these communities, these small groups come together and they do research on who these families were, you know, what their names were, how old they were, what they, where they went to school, you know, they, they can even find, you know, the most granular information, what their favorite food was, what sort of, what their favorite flavor of ice cream was. And it all just makes it more human, right? And it, and it, it is the act of attempting to remember, the act of reflection, the act of, of, the most personal and intimate of, of archives that become the most important piece of memorialization more than anything else. And, um, yeah, so, so I would just encourage people, you know, if you see something in your community that deserves to be remembered, you don't have you to wait do for it. somebody else to do it. You can do it. One last comment. Jeffrey writes, I'm a Jewish person, and when I was 13, instead of a bar mitzvah, my father sent me on a tour to Europe. This was 1963, and the aftermath of World War II was still horrifyingly palpable, especially at Dachau. This was before they had created much of a memorial, and just being there broke my heart and changed my life. We've been talking with writer Clint Smith about his cover story in December's issue of The Atlantic called Monuments to the Unthinkable, about how Germany has been reckoning with public memory of the Holocaust. Thank you so much, Glenn Smith, for joining us. Thank you. It's always good to talk to you. And please, everyone, read this piece. It's beautiful, elegiac. It's worth your time. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.